Hello and welcome to Required Reading. This week we're talking about Frankenstein, or as Mike Burns keeps referring to it as Frankenstein, which, you know, if you know, you know. Anyway, this is a classic gothic novel, and I apparently was taught it when I was here at Marist, um, but it had since fallen by the curriculum, so there are murmurs it might come back. Also, uh, if you're reading this for class or listening to this instead of reading it for class, just FYI, it's very different than the movies. So, uh, I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I appreciate your continued patronage. Uh, thanks for sharing. Thanks for writing reviews. Please write reviews, and th- please pass this on. Thanks, guys. Welcome to Required Reading. This week, we start our kind of spooky halloween month. Uh, we thought it would be appropriate to do kind of a classic horror, like last year when we did some uh, Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, this time, we're going to introduce a kind of classic classic of gothic horror, or I guess you'd call it gothic horror, maybe? Yeah. Um, we have uh, Frankenstein by uh, Mary Shelley. And on panel with me... We have Mike Carroll and Mike Burns, and as you know, we've been trying to make an effort to, um, you know, let you know what we're doing in advance. And so this time we thought we would do Frankenstein followed by a modern retelling of Frankenstein. So we're going to do next uh, Jurassic Park, um, partially because the movies were in theater, uh, especially the most recent, which is completely mediocre. But also, it's probably the book that I've read the most, so I figured we'd get it on the show eventually. Uh, in but while we're here, of course, we will talk uh, Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. Uh, gentlemen, do you have any opening thoughts or salvos you want to get out? Um, well, the only thing, I'm, I'm looking it up right now. I'm trying to find out. I hadn't read it in a while, and the last time I sort of encountered it was at an AP reading, and I forget what year, so I was on the AP uh, lit reading, and it was Q3, the open-ended question. And I, I'm trying to find the prompt to forget the prompt, but I think I read like 250 essays about Frankenstein that year, so I felt like it had been in my mind a lot since then. Um, but rereading it was interesting in, in ways I think we'll talk about. So that was my last time prior to this recent rereading of it for me. How about you, Mike? Yeah, this is uh, this is my second time making my way through the text. The first time I read it, I read it when I was in high school, uh, and I read it in. AP Lit my junior year, um, and that was for Ann Burridge. Shout out to Ann Burridge, who was my uh, my AP English teacher my junior year, uh, and we read it while uh, it was it was in the winter term. And I actually I remember that because I remember being up at my brother's swim meet at Middlebury College, um, and he he was he was on the swim team for Bates College, um, and we were there watching him swim it was also uh i i think that my parents used it as an opportunity to kind of tour me around some of the other schools that are up in the northeast and i remember being in the stands uh watching my brother swim and in in between events i had the secondary sources that we were using for for frankenstein right there in the uh in the in the bleachers with me as i was going through uh some of the research that i uh that i was required to do for not just frankenstein but then some of the secondary sources that we were we were reading alongside it 
uh, that was also the coldest. This is totally, totally tangential, <laughs> but it was also the coldest that I've ever seen any thermometer in my life. Uh, it was negative 25 degrees <laughs> when we were driving up to Middlebury College, and then I remember touring around the school, and it was uh, it got a little bit warmer that morning. It was negative 17 degrees uh, as we were walking around uh, as we were walking around campus. But yeah, that was the last time that I read it prior to rereading it for uh, for this podcast, and um, I think that my my, my opinions of it have uh, have been reaffirmed and changed in some way. So kind of like Mike, I'm excited to get into it. Uh, well, how do you know that I've read this before? <laughs> well, uh, actually, in, in preparing for this podcast, it's, it's very funny. Uh, we were talking with one of, uh, or rather, I was talking with one of our colleagues, Dr. Shannon Hipp, and um, I was looking for a text that I could go through and highlight the quotes that I wanted to talk about when we were going through the podcast, and I was going through the shelf in the English department and couldn't quite find one, so uh, I asked Shannon Hip, Dr. Shannon Hip, if she uh, if she had a copy, and she, she went into her room probably about 10 to 15 minutes later, came back out, wielding a copy of Frankenstein uh, that none other than our very own Nick Hoffman uh, had had autographed. I guess Ooh. I guess Shannon Hip had a collector's had, item. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, but uh, but Shannon Hip, I guess had had the students that were in her class that year and in that class um, all sign a copy of one of the one of the books that they had read. Uh, and so Frankenstein, I suppose, was the was the book that was selected for that class. So I have a uh, a copy of of this text from uh, from Shannon Hip, and it says. Uh, thanks for this great term from Nicholas Hoffman. That's so. good. Um, How I'm great shocked. was it? Flashback, come on, tell us. <laughs> I'm, I'm impressed that you could uh, read my hand. Yes. <laughs> um, and Shannon joined us, was it for Just Mercy? She, she isn't she, Just Mercy, right? Yeah, yeah she, she, she's been on before. We're trying to get her, but, you know. Busy. We need to get her for Beloved, too. Yeah, busy, busy, busy human being. Um, so, I have read this before, clearly. Yeah. Um, I don't know... As English teachers, this is probably one of the best books to use if you want to see if the kids are watching the movie or reading the book. <laughs> True. Because it diverges greatly. I, I, I mean, I remember it. I remember it as an epistolary novel. I remember it having a lot to do with chasing the monster. We'll, we'll go back and forth. Um, I picked it up a few years ago. Just, you know, felt like the right kind of thing to read during the fall. Um, every time I read it, I get something different out of it. Mm. And it's funny because there's probably there's few books that have more mythology about it than Frankenstein, the, the actual process of the book, mm -hmm. right? And we've done one of them. I, I think you know, talking about Tolkien, you get you get a lot of that. But like, really, for her, like, I think most people think of some ver version of the 1931 movie, the Boris Karloff movie. Uh, the James Whale movie, whatever, where, you know, it's all about the making of the monster, and then the monster, the monster does interact with people, but that's not the focus of the film. Uh, so I, I remember the first time I read it being, not disappointed, just wondering what I had read. Uh, Rereading it this time, I know I said this with the Sparrow, and I promise it won't be an ongoing trope, it's more of a philosophical novel, dealing with what it means to be human. Obviously the monster is not the monster, it's the doctor who creates him. Uh, but yeah, I, I really like this. Uh, and we'll get to it. Uh, do you think people know the story I, of how it was created? Or should we just mention it quickly here? Yeah, tell me, tell what origin story. That's what this is all about, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, so the, the story goes, 
uh, I mean, this the first version of this book comes out in 1818, so I imagine it's like 1815, 1816. There's a uh, a trip that she goes on with at the time. What was her more popular, more famous husband? Right, uh, and it also includes Lord Byron, I believe, uh, Mary Shelley and Percy Shelley. At least there are probably other people there, but it was a dark and stormy night, uh, <laughs> as Snoopy would tell us, and they wanted to say who could write the best horror story, and you can find all three. I, actually, I don't know if you can find the original Mary's version before this novel comes out, but you know, Percy and Byron wrote like a vaguely creepy poetry. Uh, which they eventually published as well. But her story comes out as this, and I believe originally she called it The Modern Prometheus, uh, which is still the subtitle of the novel. Uh, but, you know, she's the only one who really develops it. And it becomes this kind of uh, hit pretty early on uh, with this, it's really more of a romantic book than science fiction. Uh, but yeah, it, it it's one of those you know, everyone's had those like sleepovers, those parties where you and your friends get together and you come up with big ideas. Well, she carried through with hers. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I hope I hope we can get into a little bit of the um, of the title and the the titling of a modern day Prometheus is really interesting to me. And yeah. I I'm finding myself asking myself why a modern day Prometheus because there are other there are lots of other illusions that are made in here there's allusions to Paradise Lost there's allusions to the creation story of uh, of Adam and Eve and the the fact that uh, that she went with Prometheus rather than some of those other biblical illusions not just biblical illusions but creation illusions right. and uh, outcast illusions and there's there's a lot that's going on there and I find my I found myself for the for at least the, probably the, the first three quarters of my way through the novel, finding myself trying to apply many of the other illusions that uh, that are also made in the story, and um, and the Prometheus one was the one that hit me in the last quarter of the text, and right. I'd, I'd love to talk with you guys about that as as we make our way through it. But I think that we gotta we gotta kind of get into the get into the plot before we get into that. Well, do you, do you want to at least mention who Prometheus was? Yeah, so I mean, you guys probably have a have a more uh, have a more astute uh, background on Prometheus than I do, but uh, I believe uh, God or Titan, Titan perhaps. Uh, I'm getting some nods, so I think Titan, um, who uh, <laughs> stole fire from the from the gods and uh, brought it to humanity. Uh, fire there being more, I think, emblematic of uh, of not just the 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 element of fire, but also knowledge and science and mm -hmm. discovery uh, brought to brought to humanity and was punished uh, so brutally by uh, by Zeus. Right. Uh, and the manner in which he was punished uh, was that he was, I believe, strapped to a boulder. Um, and then every day had his liver pecked out by, um, and I, th this is the, the bird changes from story to story that if I, if I remember correctly, I think maybe an eagle yeah. as being, a, as being an emblem of Zeus. Correct. Um, so that has his liver pecked out, uh, every day and then, uh, rebuilt or regenerates I'm not sure what the best word is for the liver but um, but regenerates only only to have the same uh, the same fate brought upon him the next day and that that torture and that that um, that punishment that he receives 
that's where I see a lot of the the overlap with. Uh, that's where I see a lot of the overlap with Victor yeah. Frankenstein and 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 the what he undergoes throughout the story. Right, and then she also ties it very much to the Adam and Eve story. Yeah. So there's this apple of knowledge that mm -hmm. Prometheus gives to humanity, um, and. That's what Victor believes he's uncovered, and reading it, and, and this is us getting into it, but like reading it, it really feels very much like, you know, a lot of a lot of modern like conspiracy or like alternative medicine thinking. Like the ancients had it right, we just have to rediscover mm -hmm. that which they knew, right? Because he's at, at first when he's like. He, I mean, it's epistolary, so mm -hmm. I apologize. None of this stuff actually happens chronologically. Uh, just like when we talked about the Scarlet Letter and we start in the Customs House, the beginning of this is him semi-conscious in a like in a glacier breaker in the North Atlantic, the North Sea somewhere, yeah. um, <laughs> chasing a monster in the darkness. And frankly, of the things that they don't usually put in the movies, this part's really creepy, uh -huh. right? Like they find this half-dead man and. They, he grabs like the captain and he's like, is the monster still coming? Like, that's really good. Yeah. Um, but then in his delirium, he tells a 200 page story to this captain. Um, but like chronologically, what, what gets him into this is he, as a young kid, he's reading his dad's library and learning what biology is. But what he's reading is all these old Greeks and like mm -hmm. people who are no longer relevant to modern German thinking. Yeah. Um, but they're all talking about like the elixirs of life and how humanity can regenerate, yada yada yada, um, and that's where we get this Promethean idea. And I think that's what um, is the problem with the book, if I want to say that. It's not that the book is flawed, but people are expecting a thriller, a monster thriller. And as you said, Nick, the pacing. Yeah, it starts in the action. You think, where's the monster? It's going to come and get, and then you flash back to this letter, and then this previous letter, and this sort of builds in a way that's maybe not as suspenseful as people associate with Frankenstein. That was my thought upon rereading it. So well, you, you like, think of the horror films and someone stalking you or Boris Karloff, and that's not this book. And when he's assembling the monster, it takes two or three years. And I mean, her, her, you know, not, her lack of biological knowledge aside, that's not dramatic, right? Like what we really want is this like, guy on meth who's just like working as hard as he can and the storm happens at the right moment that's what makes the whale movie so exciting this is just like he, the, the making of the monster is almost undramatic because it comes to life he screams and runs away yeah, yeah. which is like alright well there, there goes the plot there goes the thing I was interested in seeing right um, sorry. Yeah, but I think uh, aside from kind of the the thriller aspect of it, I think starting with kind of like the the letters, like almost like prelude into into what ends up happening with the the majority of the story, which is an embedded narrative, right? So we we kind of start with the we start towards the end with the discovery of not just Victor Frankenstein, who's who's kind of like in the ice. I think very importantly because you also the uh, the it's Captain Walton who's who's on this who's on this ship who's on this uh, this boat making a voyage to the North Pole. So we have another scientific expedition, another voyage, another uh, another pursuit of uh, of knowledge that's taking place with with Captain Walton, who first sees the monster and the monster is mobile. The monster is on is it has a a. 
a, a dog sled, sled yeah, yeah. The, who who is who is pulling this this monster. It, it's almost though the the monster looks more human than Victor Frankenstein is, who is very dormant, frozen, and and stuck in one place, and is far more decrepit at that moment than than the monster is. So the j just to kind of go through to go through the plot, uh, Captain Walton is then writing letters back to his sister Margaret. Um, and, and over the course of these letters, we're hearing now, through those letters, the story of, of, um, of Victor Frankenstein, who is relating his story about how not only he found himself in, in, in this ice, but also uh, how it is that the monster who was being pulled by these sled dogs uh, found his way into the, uh, found his way up north as well. But if I'm remembering right, the creature gets the last word, right? He's yes. the last, so yeah. I think that's an important... And appropriate ending for this, so I'm jumping way ahead. Sorry. No, I mean, the, the, might as well, because this book. And I, I want to say I enjoyed it. It frustrated me at times, though. Um, also, this is just because we teach Amex. But the the great philosopher Immanuel Kant, uh, about ten years before this was written, appropriately called uh, Ben Franklin the modern Prometheus because he steals lightning. Oh, really? And mm -hmm. so I mentioned that because part of the story involves the activation of elements with the lightning involved. Oh. You know, I mean, flying the kite. Oh, I get it. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, stealing that power, yeah. Uh, anyway, so uh, Frankenstein lives a standard existence in that everyone dies around him constantly, mm -hmm. um, specifically of scarlet fever and then eventually monsteritis. Uh, a tragic case of monsteritis. Um, but, very, you know, very contagious. <laughs> <monster. laughs> Turns out. Crushing. Uh, but, like, it's... <laughs> this book, man. So the beginning part, this framing narrative, takes up, you know, I, I don't know, my, the version I had it was about 200 pages or so, mm -hmm. uh, takes up about the first 40 pages. And then Victor Frankenstein's like, ah, oh, but I was a youth in Naples, Italy. And then he just goes on and on. Um, he's born to these Genevans, uh, and this is where we're introduced to the fact that they adopt a girl named Elizabeth mm -hmm. uh, when Victor's five. Uh, they, call, they call each other cousin, mm -hmm. um, at least in the original version. Uh, though apparently that's been changed, and uh, it gets changed later on. Yeah, I read that when she was kind of burnishing her and her husband's legacy in the 1831 version, I think is that the next one, that she kind of played down her bohemian roots. Um, because when she was like on that dark and stormy night, she's an unwed mother hanging out with it. It's kind of an open marriage situation, and in order to like sell the story better, she clarifies that Elizabeth is not the cousin to get rid of the sort of incestual overtones there. Um, did you guys read the same thing? Or you, I, that was news to me. I didn't know that. No, yeah. I mean, I had one that was like the original 1818 edition, but like it was telling my, it had like footnotes and like little, mm -hmm. little things that were like, uh, it was like the Cambridge edition or something. And so it said like, and this was, these were changes she made later on and kind of had a, a mixture of things. So I'm going to have a hard time separating what was there and what wasn't. Right. But um, so Elizabeth kind of, moves in and you know i mean it's a very friendly relationship until about he's about to go to college and they're like and one way we one day we will be wed and then it gets weird um there's also um later a caretaker a nanny type named uh, justine mm -hmm. who becomes important later on um and right around then uh victor's mother dies of uh scarlet fever right and please stop me. No, no, no. Yeah, that, that, that's that's definitely accurate. I'm I'm trying to find. I I had kind of pulled a couple of um, a couple of quotes. One of which sure. is uh, the kind of what it is that that leads 
that leads Victor Frankenstein into this pursuit of, of knowledge and science uh, is not the wealth. And I, in kind of a spoiler for, for what it is that we'll be getting into in our next podcast with Jurassic Park, I was also fascinated in, in reviewing that text about how all of the characters that were in some way associated with the park, uh, none of them were motivated by by wealth. They were all no, they were all motivated in some ways by pride. And we get a little bit of the motivation of um, of Victor Frankenstein. If you don't mind me Please reading ahead. through, it's, it's a super short passage. It's just one sentence long, actually. This is in the in the midst of hearing about his his mother's death, and he says this. This is Victor Frankenstein. Wealth was an inferior object, but what glory would attend to the discovery if I could banish disease from the human frame and render man invulnerable to any but a violent death. And so we get the, the fact that it's not wealth that he's going after. It's not pride. When he's, when he's trying to go through this scientific discovery, it's about trying to better humanity, which, is, which seems such a noble pursuit. And then that gets that gets made, uh, that kind of like twists and turns as the story goes on. But, but that's, the, that's kind of where it is that the, the pursuit originally comes from. And I was just struck by the fact that so similar to everybody that's associated with, uh, with Jurassic Park, it's, it's not about the wealth for him. It's not even about the pride necessarily. It's, it's about this, uh, this pursuit of knowledge that ends up being the thing that he, uh, that he renounces at the end of the story. Yeah. No, I, and it's it's something that uh, Malcolm gets into a lot in it, but like the idea of he doesn't think about the consequences either, right? Right, like you know, um, later in that same passage, he has it is the secrets of earth and heaven that I desire to learn, and whether it was outward substance of things or the inner spirit of nature, the mysterious soul that man occupies me, still my inquiries were directed towards the metaphysical. I mean, and again, like you could say, oh, this is a guy whose whose mother died. And he never wants anyone to go through what he did again. But, like, he, he doesn't think about anything outside of that, which is still kind of selfish in a, in a way. And that's what's going to uh, be think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's one of the most selfish characters in that. Yeah. <laughs> he's so frustrating. <laughs> yeah, he is. Absolutely. Yeah, so, I mean, in terms of, like, high school literature classes, what is his tragic flaw then? Is it ambition? Is it like Macbeth in that way? Or. Is it pride, like he thinks he can control or create the perfect human, like, like to envy what God can do, like the modern Prometheus, or what? I mean, what I told you. I think it's, I'm jumping to the end, but Please. i got to say this. At the end, he says, I, you know, I've examined my past conduct, and I do not find it blamable. Like, he is completely, <laughs> you know, self-delusional and that he is not at fault here. Um, at least that's how I read it. I don't know. What do you guys think? I mean, well, I told you when I finished reading it, and you, I think you were about two-thirds through it, I was like, he's that dude who goes to a funeral and makes it all about himself. Totally. Like, like that, that's really what it feels like. And he comes out, and, I mean, it's, you know, I watched Star Trek TNG. Like, you, you have, like, Data walking around, and he doesn't really understand why people are doing things. There's your monster. And then he's the one who's out there like, yes, but you need to make it about yourself. Right? Like, it's just, it's so infuriating because even when he's assembling the body, he doesn't, like, there's always that great scene where Igor is, like, talking about which brain to get. There's not even that. It's, like, it's all superfluous to his own ambition. 
um, and his goal is to defeat death because he's the greatest man who's ever lived. Like it's it's really something. Yeah, and I think that the that notion of ambition, I do think, is it, it has to be kind of wrapped up in his Haymartia, right? I mean that that it's it's everywhere throughout the novel, and it you almost get that moment of metanoia towards the end when he's saying his it's it's his last words to Captain Walton. He says, "Farewell, Walton. Seek happiness and tranquility, and avoid ambition, even if it be only the apparently innocent one of disgusting uh, of distinguishing yourself in science and discovery." So he says, "Make sure that you're not being ambitious." But then, like no more than three or four paragraphs earlier on is the the moment when Victor Frankenstein is is talking to the 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 people that are on Captain Walton's ship and he's saying to them when they're coming into the captain's quarters saying please if this ice happens to melt by any miracle we need to make sure that we turn our ship around and we get this this other confusing line from Victor Frankenstein who says, what do you mean? What do you demand of your captain? Are you then so easily turned from your design? Did you not call this a glorious expedition? And wherefore was it glorious? Not because the way was smooth and placid as as a southern sea, but because it was full of danger and terror. So I think you, you get these lines from him that are like, you need to make sure that you're being ambitious. Go on into the great unknown. Go, go on with your expedition. And then the, the last the last couple of lines, the very last lines that he says to the captain are to make sure that you're avoiding that ambition. And it almost seems as though, I don't know, those are just in such close proximity to one another. And that juxtaposition really bothered me at the end. It's like, well, well, which is it, Victor Frankenstein? Is it, should we be going after our ambition? Have we learned our lesson or have we not? I, I think that's just his own blindness, the way I read that. Like, because he's the one that abandons the project, essentially. He freaks right. out and runs away. And he starts to create the female, and then it abandons that, too, yeah. destroys that. So I, I think that's how I read that. But that, that's a good point. I missed yeah. that, that juxtaposition of those here. Yeah, and, and I mean, I guess we should kind of get into this. Like, he buries himself in studies. He stops even writing to people back home that get worried about him. Um, he excels... Firstly, like really at chemistry. He's, he's really good at chemistry. Um, and then depart, then, then they kind of just throw in, he gets really good at bringing things to life. Uh, adding animation to non-living matter, which you're just like, okay, you know, there should be a step there. Uh, but he decides what he's going to do is make this humanoid. And this is the part where it gets really weird. Not, not that it's not a strange concept, but it turns into like this eight foot tall like monstrosity. This isn't like he took a body and fixed it up. No, no, he's building something from scratch which takes years, we're told. And in like two and a half years, he doesn't reach out to anyone. Just in time for his buddy Henry to show up, um, which if anyone's ever seen a horror movie, that means he's dead. <laughs> like it's, it's But it, we don't get the, the incredible scene really of them doing it, but like the monster wakes up and makes eye contact, and suddenly he realizes, like, you gross, and runs screaming from the room. And it has these watery eyes, it's described in yellow skin, and like it's barely stretched over the the muscles and the the like the blood vessels, and it's repulsive. Um, and while wandering the streets, he just runs into his buddy, and then the, it just gets put on hold for a bit. It's very strange. 
Anyway, sorry. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's in that moment where he goes back to his his laboratory after the after encountering uh, Henry, and I love the character of Henry, and I think yeah. that maybe it's the maybe it's I, I kind of read him as a bit of a foil for uh, for Victor Frankenstein, not just in terms of his ambition, but in terms of his actual pursuits as well. Where where Victor Frankenstein is pursuing the uh, the sciences in chemistry. Uh, Henry is pursuing the the English literature, and and maybe maybe that's why it is that I'm, that I'm particularly fond of of Henry is that he's a romantic at heart. Um, but the but he goes back to his laboratory, as you're saying, Nick, after uh, after um, after essentially breathing life into this monster, and now the mo- whoops, the monster's gone. Uh, so this this uh, the. The, this repulsive monster that he's created over the course of the last two and a half years, or however long, is now uh, is now has now gone missing. Um, so that's the <laughs> and he's and he's doesn't know what to do about this. Well, and and this sets up the whole actually literary debate of the era, right? Because this is what is more important: the humanities or the sciences, right? Mm-hmm. The, the Romantic era or this kind of Enlightenment era, which preceded it. And obviously this comes down on the humanity side. This needs, you need to learn what it needs to be human. Mm-hmm. And like, he, they go out, Henry and him go out for a bit, and then uh, he receives this shock, and he's essentially out for weeks at a time to recover just in time for his brother to have been killed. Uh, w- William is, is then mm-hmm. dead. Uh, we, we then kind of go back uh, to Geneva. Uh, where Victor sees out of the corner of his eye the monster. Mm-hmm. Um, to get the story to make any kind of functional sense, they need to find a victim, and Frankenstein himself is afraid to come forward to say, it was the monster I created because, I mean, A, that would never make sense to anyone, but B, um, they found someone, uh, Justine, the, the servant mm-hmm. who the family loves more than anything, had um, a, like a little locket that the son had uh, with a picture of his mother. It was in her pocket, and that's all we have. Right. Um, and so uh, there's a trial going on, and while the trial's going on, you know they're they're calling together character witness. Elizabeth speaks on her behalf, uh, but it's not enough. And uh, yeah, she's convicted. Yeah, and I think aside from uh, aside from. If I'm if I'm not mistaken, the order that it takes place in the in the text is exactly how it is that you described it, yeah. Nick. Where we the victor sees the the monster kind of like out of the corner of his eye, and then later on, it it's only later on that he that he's told about the circumstances around Williams. Uh, murder and he's just absolutely convinced that it's the monster right. and the the and so as a result all of the evidence that's that's finding its way that's condemning Justine Victor like won't hear it he's 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 so convinced that it's the monster and I remember being like well it, and, and at this point I think that it's important to note too that we we haven't heard the monster's story we haven't we haven't heard the monster talk we don't know that the monster does talk uh, so it, it's almost as though Victor like I think condemns the monster before even we as the readers do, but it shows just his his obsession and, and the 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 hatred even that he has for the monster. And then of course after uh, Justine is uh, is found guilty of this crime, it's not until later that we realize that the monster actually very actively framed Justine for right. for the uh, for the death of William. Um, and that's that's we get that from the monster's own word of mouth when we get his origin story that comes uh, or not. Well, I guess it is an origin story. Well, and, it, and that comes next. Yeah, I will say first, 
it's a great s- symptom of Victor's own ego that oh, I must have done this somehow. Right. Uh, but also, well, he did in a way. He, right? he, yeah. he did, but before there's any evidence to the contrary, before he finds out anything, it goes well. It must have been my fault. Right. Um, but this, we, there's all these movies that I can mention. But like, we anyone ever watch a movie where there's a narrator and then halfway through it switches narrators? Mm-hmm. That's what this does five times. Yeah. And so the. the, the <laughs> But he's Justine is hanged, right? Uh, and then Victor's like, I need to go to a retreat to the mountains, and he goes to uh, Mont Blanc, which is in France. And then it suddenly becomes the creature's story yeah. for the next fifty pages. Yeah. Uh, and if and talking with uh, Burns about this, this is where it has the most successful emotional impact, I think. Yeah, I mean, I'd forgotten or it glazed over when I first read it, but the part that really got me this time, because I'm a music guy is when the monster hears music, hears the old man playing music, and he's just like so moved emotionally. And I was like, oh wow, this, I mean, he's again, getting to the monster is certainly more human in my interpretation than Victor in many ways. Um, but that part was really struck me this time. Yeah, I'm um, see if I can find the quote. Um, but yeah, so, um, and also what struck me, I, I, I also listened to it on audio uh, the first time, and then when the monster starts speaking, the, the actor used a different voice. Um, but I, I just wondered, what is the Lexile score of this monster? Like, <laughs> he is super, super articulate, and, yeah. which again, I had I'd, I'd forgotten about how um, we can talk about maybe why she's doing that, um, putting such great words in the, in the monster's, in the creature's mouth. Yeah, and I, I, I had not remembered that, or I had failed to remember, I guess, that the monster spoke just as much as the monster did. Oh, I mean, right. So much of this text is actually being told from the monster's own perspective, and he's far more articulate than Victor. And the the humanity, I, I totally agree, Mike. That aspect of humanity is is a lot more uh, forthright in uh, in the monsters in the monsters' own words than. Uh, than it is coming from from Victor, and I was I was I I was very surprised by that as well, and that must not have when when I was reading it again in my my junior year of high school, I I didn't pick up on the the just how whoa this is this is a really articulate monster that's that's what like um like maybe a couple months old right uh, and it and is so is so uh, and well read and articulate uh, finds a satchel that has paradise lost among a couple of other books that are in it and I think that that's kind of just if you hadn't picked up on it before kind of like knocking you over the head with the allusions to uh, to Satan and pandemonium and the fallen angels and uh, the the kind of discarding from from Eden and there's there's just so much that's there but just how much the monster talks is was something that uh, that really took me by surprise yeah I found the quote if you guys want me to read it so um he's watching the old man taking up an instrument began to play and produce sounds sweeter than the voice of the thrush or the nightingale it was a lovely sight even to me poor wretch who had never beheld aught beautiful before and then he skips down a little bit um uh, he raised her and smiled with such kindness and affection then i felt sensations of a peculiar and overpowering nature they're a mixture of pain and pleasure, such I had never experienced before, either from hunger or cold, or warmth or food. And I withdrew from the window, unable to bear these emotions. Yeah, so it's, it's just really great. I mean, it, here's this 
creature again, but it's just learning, literally learning how to feel, and, and music is the catalyst for that. Oh I love yeah, that. and yeah. there's there, there's the other moment, and you you just brought up learning how to feel, where quite literally it has to do with fire, and I was fascinated by the usage of fire in the text so much mm -hmm. so that I actually found an online version and tried to find the number of mentions that, that oh, there wow. are to fire in the text and just because of the the stealing of fire from Prometheus that's mm. so that's so important to the text but the moment that that, that made me think of is when when the monster is uh, discovers fire for the first time and he reaches into it and the uh, I'm, I'm not sure if I'll be able to find it right here I've, I've got a lot of like sticky notes in here for the different uh, passages that I wanted to read through but the one where he where he is he's blown away by how this thing can provide such warmth and also such pain. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's exactly what it is that you're, that you're discovering here when he's listening to music. He's, he's discovering all these things for the first time, be it the, the pain that comes from fire, be it the, be it the, the, the music. And there's actually a line earlier on, I, I found in my, my fire discovery in the text of Frankenstein, uh, that the, you, you might remember very early on when Victor Frankenstein, it's before he creates the monster, uh, is fascinated by the lightning that comes and creates the fire on the tree stump. And at first it's so beautiful. And then the line has something to say that, like, that, that he's never seen something so shredded and so destroyed. So it's this, this same thing where the, the fire, if you trace it back to Prometheus, this is the source of that knowledge. It's the source of that ambition. It's that, it's that knowledge from the tree of, of uh, or that, that fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, if we go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And now suddenly it's this fire that is that is in one way life bringing and in another way so destructive as well. And I, I don't know, I'm, I'm just hearing a lot of that in with the, that passage that you're reading with the, with the music as well. Yeah, I agree. And it also is foreshadowing too, like what is so, you don't know till later, what is so moving to the creature is like he sees this connection between the old man and the child and, and what is devastating to him is he is alone, like at the end of the novel, he bemoans, I'm yeah. alone, I'm alone, I don't have anybody. and. Uh, the book I have, the subtitle or the um, annotations, read, do a lot of sexuality into that. Oh, like, wow. Uh, like he doesn't have anyone because he talks about his impotent rage and, mm -hmm. and all these sorts of things, which I hadn't thought of before. But that idea of connecting is what makes us human, and, and he's deprived of that. Well, I have your quote. Yeah. Uh, One day when I was oppressed by cold, I found a fire which had been lit by some wandering beggars and was overcome with the delight of the warmth I experienced from it. In my joy, I thrust my hand into the live embers, but quickly drew it out again with a cry of pain. How strange, I thought, that the same should cause produce such opposite effects. Yeah. There you go. And the one that I was going to bring up, because you did, is him as Adam, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, where he essentially compares himself like... Uh, I am Adam, or I thought I would be, uh, remember thy monster, I ought to be thy Adam, but rather I am thy fallen angel, from who you drivest joy for no misty. Right, like there, there's your paradise lost. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but, you know, he, Victor Frankenstein is talking about making this the first of a new species of man, right? Um, and we have destroyed, we've removed his humanity, and the monster has to find humanity, uh, which is such an interesting kind of... So can I? I've never taught this before, nor did I ever read it in class. Mm -hmm. So those of you who both read it in class, yeah. Um, in terms of again, high school literature, is Victor a static character, and the creature is dynamic, or how do you guys remember? Or Mike, how would you teach it if you're teaching it today? Would you even use those terms, or what would you say? You know, I. I don't know. I'd, ha I'd have to think about it a little bit more. I, I think that that's a, that's a really interesting 
question. I think the, the notion of being uh, static versus dynamic being the, the capacity for change, the capacity for, uh, for, uh, for being able to change. And I don't see that happening with Victor so much so that he has that moment at the end where it's kind of like the learn from me, almost like Shakespearean tragedy in a way. Um, oh, that, yeah. that, that, that you get at the end. And as a result, I, I would definitely put him in the, in the realm of the static, but thinking about whether the monster would be static or, or, uh, dynamic, certainly dynamic, I think. That's what I would think. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I, I think that I would, I would agree with that interpretation. Yeah. I like the monster. Yeah. I, mean, I, I think, too. I think we're supposed to, right? Well, I mean, I mean we're supposed to sympathize with him. Right. right? I mean, he needs a murderer, yeah. but yeah. I mean, repeatedly. <laughs> Um, what a heart of gold. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, again, like, even all the versions of it do include not only fire, but at the end when they burn, they, this is generally the movie version, but to complete the metaphor, they burn him in the, in the, the mill, right? Like in the windmill, like this idea that he would also be consumed, it makes sense. Well, he intends to self-emulate, right? He does. Yeah, but we never know if he does. That's sort of left open-ended. Yeah, yeah. and well, well, one thing, and I'm, I'm still kind of, I'm, in the back of my head, I'm still kind of working through this this notion of fire, and even more so, Mike, what you were talking about with this with this kind of discovery in this very human music moment that, that came earlier on. This is all from the old man that, correct me if I'm wrong, but is blind. Right. right, and and so then the monster a little, a little bit later on comes in and is able to converse with the with the old man, and it's not it's it's the fact that he he can't see this monster, and as we know, this monster is extremely articulate, and it's very uh, is very um, is is very well put together in terms of the the conversation that he's having, and it's almost as though he's going to have a friend, he's going to have his companion that he spends the rest of the story looking for, and it's it's his repulsiveness that the other characters that the that the old blind man's son uh, ends up like shrieking in fear and and starts to hate the monster for his appearance and it's as a result of that that the monster kind of like goes on his frenzy but he doesn't commit murder yet and it's actually at that moment I think in the text that he says that he couldn't commit a harm to some other being and that as a result, he ends up like burning down the village and once once again, a destructive use of fire, right? right. And so the, he, he doesn't cause any harm to those people. And a little bit later on, he saves that girl from the from the, uh, from the the river. This is prior to his murder of William. And he gets um, shot. And, and he gets shot. And, and that, maybe that's the moment that things transform for him because at that point, he will not bring harm to any other humans. And then all of a sudden, he he's like, this is the thanks I get for saving this. The, this this human being and then all of a sudden now he's very willing to commit murder and very willing to kill um, and so I, you know what I'm, I'm now convinced Mike that he should certainly be considered a dynamic character yeah, yeah. I just wondered what you guys thought of Victor um, but yeah well yeah, I mean but... it's almost as though Victor is what the mor what morality of science is right like I mean I think she's trying to make a point that uh, we'll get more into it with Jurassic Park or whatever but the idea is that he, he was more interested to see if he could do it. His story almost ends at that point. Yeah, the um, ambition outstrips his wisdom or lack of yeah, foresight yeah. or something. Yeah. And it. so, I mean, maybe Mike Carroll's wrong, though. Um, <laughs> maybe the, the, the metaphor is not about fire, but about light. Mm. Because we just, when we're introduced to the icebreaker at the beginning, what we get from Captain Walton is that this is a, a place of eternal light because they're at the North Pole. It never mm -hmm. gets dark at night. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so what is what does that mean? Well, everything's brought out into the open. 
and the light illuminates the darkness and it starts in small bursts and becomes brighter and brighter until the, at the end what we've got is this illuminated i mean whether or not frankenstein learns anything or not the whole story comes out and in the end the monster is the one who actually gets the final word yeah uh, enlightened man replaces the non-enlightened man or whatever you want to say and i'm sure there's some great papers if we you know went on jstor or whatever about sound and music because as you're saying that about the blind man i'm thinking well that's his connection through speech with right. the, if the guy doesn't see him but they connect through speech through that sound is what bonds and then when the old man essentially learns or sees through his son's eyes right that's when the hatred and rejection all happen right yeah. Yeah. and i mean and it's this is really the tragic part of the story because he's living in the woods outside he's looking in at them and, and doing good deeds for them right? yeah, yeah. Chopping, chopping the wood, wood yeah. and trying to you know trying to help take care of this old man who's and there's this whole like marriage story thing going on in the background. Like there's all this family drama, which the monster like doesn't understand, but wants to help out with. And I don't know. It's 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 impressive. Yeah, I, I guess I, I just really felt his yearning, yearning to connect more yeah. so than mm -hmm. I remember feeling before. I didn't even remember that part of it. So that was interesting upon my rereading. Yeah. 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 I'm curious though, going back to high school, did you guys like it when you read it in class in high school, or what? What are your memories of that? I mean, honestly, I, I don't remember liking it or disliking it. I just remember it being a completely different experience, really, than I it wasn't, thought. Wasn't the movie? You thought well, I mean, it was it, it, but it also doesn't have any of the beats that I, I remember. Like, and I do remember the icebreaker. I do remember that. I do remember the scene with the the family. I remember the scene with the family very vividly. Um, and then I remember that the monster wanted his revenge. Like, like, I, I, I. So I do remember the beats of the story. I remember coming out of it. Because it, 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 it's not hard to read, but the for, the format of it is often confusing. Because, you know, if you, because yeah. when you're just citing it in class, obviously it's a chapter two at a time, the chapters are pretty short, and it's epistolary. And so I'm like, you, whenever you crack it back up, you're like, who's talking and why? And, it, it, and that's part of the problem I have with it. Because it's not like a few weeks ago when we did Extremely Not Incredibly Close, where it's chapter by chapter, huge chunks of the book completely change narrative style. Um, so that, that, that part I remember being, but to be fair, I struggled with lit at the time, so I might not be the best person to ask. Yeah. Uh, we'll check with Dr. Hip about yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> we'll follow up on that. Yeah. I, uh, I loved it when I, Did you? when right. I read it the first time and I love it now. Um, the, I think it's funny. I was talking to Catherine this morning and I was like, I probably should have known when, we as the teachers are the ones that are coming up with the books that we're going to be reading for this podcast. I probably should have known at that moment when I was looking at the book list that we were going through, like, oh yeah, I love all of these texts, but we're now into like the, the fifth or sixth book that we've read for this season of the required reading podcast. And I love all of these books. <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, I pro probably should have known that ahead of time. Probably should have been able to put that together. But it's funny that you talk about uh, remembering the conversations in the in the cottage and the the conversations with the family because I don't remember any of that. What I remember was the uh, the re or the attempted animation of the the monster's companion. Right when the when the monster. Requests that Victor Frankenstein create a companion. Um, that that's that's the moment that I remember the most. And kind of like in this seaside shack, and uh, the 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 uh, creation of the Franken Frankenstein's companion, and then the the 
kind of, I, I don't know if you want to call it murder because the, because the creature has not been created yet. Uh, Abandonment. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. Of, uh, of the monster's companion that the monster is, is infuriated by. Um, that was the moment that I remembered from reading it. And uh, I was struck by it again, this time reading back through it. Um, because that's the the moment where Victor Frankenstein, it's almost like it's almost like he's gonna he's gonna go right down the same route again, only this point it's for lack of a better expression, it's kind of being done at gunpoint by the monster. Yeah. Um, but but still he has the the logical argument that the monster, the original monster that he creates, has made a pact that when this monster, when this female monster has been created, they're going to go to South America and they're going to live in the wilderness. And Victor Frankenstein thinks to himself, well, this new monster that I'm creating has no such pact. He has no such agreement, and, or she has no such agreement. And why would I believe that this monster is going to be anything besides evil? What if uh, she's worse? Exactly. Yeah. And, and it's through that line of reasoning that Victor Frankenstein ends up, uh, ends up destroying the the female monster that he was in the midst of creating all right lit news um does that characterize growth for victor um i mean i don't know i to me this is in some ways the most interesting (laughs) i i don't think so i mean i agree with you mike uh burns um but this to me is the most interesting scene um and then they she does something very weird after this but like the idea that he's like, well, I could just do it again, and he's almost resigned to that work, and then he goes, I can't, I can't do this. Yeah, I think that's an interesting, at least it's an interesting decision on his part. I thought he was going to be taken down for the fact that he's just throwing a bunch of corpse pieces in the bay. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, well, well and, and the way that it's described too was the, the that abandonment, Mike. That's the that's the word that you had used. But it's being placed into a basket and then rowed out in a boat. I was I was struck by the. I think that there's there's an allusion there to Moses. I think that yeah. the the abandonment of Moses being put in the basket. I think that there's a there's a certain um, there's a certain kind of overlap there that that I think perhaps is is meant to be made. I think there's a, there's another again. I'm sure there are many PhDs written on this, but how he abandons the female, like um, it can, he talks about the filthy process in which he was engaged uh, in creating the female, which I don't think he uses that word when he's creating the monster. Yeah, yeah. I'm reading too much into that. Is that too I much? Mean, I, I I think you're right. Um, I, wa- I mean, I wonder if this is Mary Shelley. I mean, and let's not forget, her mother is Mary Wollstonecraft. So there's a lot of feminism there, right? Um, so, like, I wonder if it's not her projecting back on society or, like you were alluding to, it's more back to a reference of Adam and Eve, mm-hmm. where Adam is created by God's hand in a very original, pure way, and then Eve comes as part of Adam, right? And it's a different process. They, they take pieces of Adam to form a new being. And so, like, I wonder if there's also biblical illusion there. I don't yeah. know. Well, what I learned, too, about um, Mary Shelley, her her mother died during giving birth to her. And so mm. some people read that into, like, what you birth will destroy you kind yeah. of thing. Um, I don't know. But here's the quote where, where he's... Um, the filthy process. Um, it was indeed a filthy process in which I was engaged during my first experiment when he's making the creature. Um, my mind was intently fixed on the sequel of my labor and my eyes were shut to the horror of my proceedings. But now, as I went to it in cold blood, my heart often sickened at the work at my hands. So he, as he's doing it, he's kind of hating himself and, and sick of it. Yeah. Um, which, again, I don't know if that's a comment on 
women or feminist reading of that, or I just thought it was interesting to use that filthy process word. I don't know. It's been too long since I've read Paradise Lost to to, uh, weigh in, though, I mean, we'll eventually get to it, I assume. Um, And, you know, maybe I'll be sick that day. (laughs) Uh, But I... It's just, it's so, that's the scene to me where if you were making a movie that was close to the book, that's obviously where, that, that's got to be the most dramatic scene, right? Because after this, there's just, everyone is going to die. The first one to die is Henry. Mm-hmm. In fact, he dies the same night that he dis- that uh, Victor disposes of the body. Um, and that's what gets him arrested, because he is arrested on those charges. Um, but circling back to your question, is this a pivotal moment or a moment of change for Victor? I view it as just a continuation of his inability to face his creation. His creation needs a partner. That's what would yeah. fulfill him, uh, and he can't do that. And that, That's how I read that. Yeah, and I think that that comes back at the end, too, when, when he, the monster, again, makes the note about being so incredibly alone. And that even even Satan had his fellow devils in right. in, uh, in hell, but he is not like Satan in the fact that he is so alone. And it's that uh, and and the the line also talks about uh, again I, I think I have it somewhere, uh, but he's the the monster is talking about the um, about how. Uh, even Satan was created by a, by a, by a God who, a loving God. yeah, but, but by a loving God, right? And and uh, the, I, I can't find the quote right now, but the uh, kind of the the there are so many similarities between the monster and being outcast and and Satan. But the thing that he keeps coming back to is how alone he is and how his creator has forsaken him and uh, and that that level of solitude. It's also it's also how the monster meets his end too, right? Com- in complete solitude, drifting out into the into the Arctic Sea. Right. I, I found it, actually. I opened up with two. Oh, so. fantastic. Um, but, it even, uh, but is it even so? The fallen angel becomes a malignant devil. Yet even that enemy of God and man had his friends and associates in desolation. I am quite alone. You, who call Frankenstein your friend, he's talking to Walton at this point, yeah, right. uh, seem to have a knowledge of my crimes and his misfortunes. But in the detail uh, which you gave of them... He could not sum up the hours and months of miseries which I have endured, wasting in impotent passions, uh, whilst I destroyed his hopes. I did not satisfy my own desires. So again, I was because of the footnotes in this book, I, I circled impotent and, and desires. They're like, yeah. I think he just wants that connection uh, or the ability to procreate. I mean, it's projecting way forward because the female version never happens. But well, in the sequel, that isolation <laughs> that you, you can't literally connect, literally or figuratively, sexually with anything. So that's, well, that's that yeah. isolation. We should throw this out here then. Um, after uh, he somehow gets off from Henry's murder, uh, he marries Elizabeth, and they go to Switzerland on vacation. And the monster kills Elizabeth. Yeah. Uh, so as even, he promised to do. Right? As, yeah. yeah. As he promised. But even then, he's taking away, he's trying to make Victor as him, right? He's taking mm-hmm. away all connections. I think his dad just dropped out of, of, of depression at, at this point, too, making Victor alone. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah. And so we now kind of, Victor literally hunts the monster to the ends of the earth. And the end of this gets interesting. Like the monster's like literally leading him along, sometimes even leading food behind just so he can survive longer to fight, you know, to chase. Um, and then they kind of end up on this ice flow. Like that, that's where it all kind of comes together. Um, where, and now we've talked about Victor's last words, but happiness and tranquility and avoid ambition. 
So do you do you guys take that as uh, as uh, a change being made in in Victor? I know Mike just from our from the conversation up until this point. I think that your answer is going to be no. But that that last line, if if you were to take that in in all of its seriousness, it would certainly seem as though he did make that change and he did, at, at the very least, we get that line of like, learn from me that, that these ambitions are, are not worth it. And so, so maybe, maybe there's a little bit of change there or do you guys not see it that way? Do you guys not read it that way? I highlighted it, let me, let me find it. Um. I mean, while Mike's looking, I'll just throw out that. <laughs> you get elements here of like, a, like a bastardized version of Pygmalion or, or of Moby Dick. Like mm -hmm. the ambition doesn't change the man until everything's gone wrong. Yeah. You know, like, so if you, if you know, you do the time travel thing, if he were to go back to where he was first at college and tell him what was going on, would young Victor still do it? I think he would. Like, mm -hmm. I don't think the characters change. No, yeah. Cause here's what, here's a little clause that sticks with me. And he says, you, I think you read this before, Mike, seek happiness and tranquility and avoid uh, ambition even if be only apparently innocent one of distinguishing yourself in science and discovery. So there's his ambition. Yet why do I say this? I myself have been blasted in these hopes, comma, yet another may succeed. So I think he dies believing the dream will go, like Willie oh, Loman wow. exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's like, I'm going to go out there, someone else will go out there and win it for me, kind right. of idea. So I view that which, as which maybe, maybe that explains why he has that rousing speech that ends up failing to the other... Uh, shipmen who are there with Captain Walton to say that is this not the ambition that you were out that right. you were going out on this on this right. journey for? So maybe maybe you're right. Maybe he maybe he is that static character that's now trying to pass that baton to to somebody else. And maybe I mean we can get really macro on this, but maybe that's what it is to be human to be yep. ambitious that way um, and keep reaching for more than you can handle. I, I guess I'm, so. I'm getting glimmers of Great Gatsby right at the <laughs> right. end. Of it's all connected, yeah. right? <laughs> but I mean, like, this, you know, this, this screams to me, well, in some ways, then, Young Frankenstein is the best uh, sequel, because what does it do? He takes his old journals and tries to do it, right? Th th this, this almost should have the ending of, like, uh, uh, SCP, if you like the internet, or uh, Indiana Jones, where they take his journals and put them in a secure place so no one tries yeah. to do this again, right? Like, because apparently he figured it out, whatever, whatever the serum of life he found yeah. worked. So you almost want to be like this, this like burn it all. Like you almost want that fire as it ends of his journals being thrown into the engine or yeah. whatever. This would be fun to teach just because I love the book, but I've never taught it uh, in companion with like Oryx and Crake. Yeah. You guys know that Margaret Atwood, where essentially it's a creation story, but a mad scientist wipes out the earth except for a few because like it's so corrupt, we've got to start all over again. Yeah. Um, to, to speak to that ambition. So. Well, and I will say, when we do next week, or two weeks from now, uh, Jurassic Park, they follow the same format in that, well, I mean, they don't, it's not, it doesn't start with the end, but they create the dinosaurs right at the beginning. And then the whole thing is them dealing with that creation as people yeah. die. Um, so clearly it can work. And I mean, we'll, we'll, let's ask the question. I mean, at the moment, I don't teach anything English. You don't teach anything English. But could you see this having a place in the classroom? Oh, sure. I mean, yeah. whether kids today would slog through it and read because it jumps around and it can be challenging that way, um, that would be the challenge. I think there's plenty to talk about and teach from this text. Yeah. It, it, I'm kind of getting excited talking about it. It would be fun to teach, yeah.
How about you, yeah, Mike? Yeah, I, I definitely think so. And just thematically, I think that there's a lot to draw from in terms of, I mean, what we've been having this conversation about, about that, what it is that makes humanity. You know, that's definitely, uh, I mean, how, how, for how many texts can you find <laughs> can you find that in the, in the canon, you know? Um, so I think that it definitely has its place in terms of, in terms of the thematically. And I think that also for what it is that makes it a little bit on the, uh, Nick, you were saying on the annoying side in terms of yeah. the, uh, the, the letters aspect, the, the epistolary aspect of it. Um, but also in terms of the embedded narrative of it, uh, th there's a lot that you could do in terms of, I'm just thinking on kind of a smaller level, the, the different assignments that you could do writing from the different perspectives, writing letters from, from one character to another that, uh, that ties in both the plot and then also some of the themes that are, that, that are being covered. Um, and I, I really like that. I like what's going on there with the, with kind of the, the overlap and the, uh, going deeper, almost like in an inception way, like deeper yeah. into this narrative as you get letters within letters and stories that are within stories. I'm really fascinated by that. And then to kind of like the, to tie it all together, the last reason I think it would be really good to, to, uh, to be taught in the classroom is because of all of these illusions that are that are being made that you could bring in these other texts to talk about the the Greek mythology that's there to talk about the uh, to talk about the 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 lineages and the different illusions to not only the Bible but also to Paradise Lost mm -hmm. and um, and then also I mean uh, why would you guys have me on here to not talk about Beowulf right right and so I'm 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 left thinking, we knew it was coming yeah, I, I know I know it's just biding our time right. But, uh, but thinking about another <laughs> biblical illusion, another monster who is an outcast from society being Grendel and the, the lack of, of vocal agency that the monster in Beowulf has compared to the monster of, uh, of Frankenstein's monster, I'm really interested in kind of this, this, this monster literature. I almost think that you could have like an elective class on That'd the different fun. monsters in literature oh, absolutely. And, and, and how it is that they, that they come to be and what it is that they represent. So yeah. I think that for sure there's, the, there's a place for it. There's a, there's many places for it, I think. Yeah. But we, uh, we dropped it currently from, is it currently in our Britlet curriculum? It's not. I don't think so. So I'm curious. We have to talk to them why mm -hmm. they did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I like it. I mean, to your point, I would say if we're talking gothic monster, I think Dracula in some ways is more accessible. Mm. Um, but I think that's the wrong interpretation of this. Uh, I think if you're doing a unit on humanism or the romantic movement, yeah. like, you know, if you're pairing this up with either Trunks of Paradise Lost or, or Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, even, oh, yeah. like, then, you, you, then I think you get it. Don't think of this as the monster movie Frankenstein. Think of this as a story about what's human. Yeah. And then I think it fits very well. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I did enjoy reading it this time. I got frustrated with Victor because he never learns a damn thing. Mm -hmm. um, but I totally understand why this would fit in hell a philosophy class. Yeah. Right. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's really has interesting questions to ask um, with an, with a narrator, with, with a, a, a major part of it who is not interested in those questions at all. Which you don't get a lot of, right? Mm -hmm. Like, um, and the, obviously next week when we do Jurassic Park, two weeks from now we do Jurassic Park, everyone's trying to get the guy to know, learn his lesson and he refuses to, <laughs> which is why this is different. You know, everyone who might have an answer gets killed. Um, anyway, so I enjoy it. I think I, I don't teach this um, subject, but I think it would fit perfectly well. Um, with that in mind, what's your Insta? Uh, Michael period C period Carol. And he's been uh, doing Beowulf. He's been plugging us. Follow him there. 
uh, follow me on Goodread. Uh, we're on Twitter. Uh, we're at Required Pod, and all of us are on Twitter. You'll find us if you find the the one guy who keeps sharing me is Mike Burns. I'll give you that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Retweet. Retweet. Um, so anyway, uh, obviously, in two weeks we'll be back with Jurassic Park. But in the meantime, thank you for everything you do: sharing, uh, reviewing, getting us in the hands of other people. And I know whenever in Pennsylvania they assign this book, we'll get a bunch of downloads from there. <laughs> so thanks for uh, thanks, and I hope we helped you with your essay this week. Uh, bye, guys. Thanks. See you. This was fun. Yeah. yeah. Alrighty, I'll let you guys get to your th- Required Reading is a product of Maris Podcasting and Dude Letter Podcasting. It is hosted by Nick Hoffman and co-hosted by Mike Burns and Mike Carroll. It is edited and produced by Nick Hoffman. The theme is Sands by Davis Burns. The opinions expressed are opinions of the hosts and the guests, but not of Marist School. All rights reserved. Thanks.